Kia ora, and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. On Friday the 2nd of October, Bryce Edwards, Maria Baj and Jack Bowles got together to discuss their pre-election predictions for the 2020 general election. This was held as a webinar for public to attend. Kia ora and thank you for joining this Spotlight Lecture Series webinar. Today, today we're focusing on the upcoming election with some predictions for what's going to happen. I'm Bryce Edwards from the Democracy Project and my fellow panel members joining us today are Maria Barg from Tikawa Maui School of Māori Studies and Jack Vowles from the School of History, Philosophy, Political Science and International Relations. So we'll kick off straight away. Um, we've got uh, Maria on Zoom coming from Auckland. So we'll allow her to kick off with her um, take on what's been happening with the election campaign and what's going to happen. Maria. Tēnā koutou katoa, uh, tēnā koutou ngā kai kōrero, uh, koutou e mā takitaki ana, uh, huri noa uh, kia tātou katoa tēnā rā koutou. Uh, thank you, Bryce, for opening us up in our, in our seminar today. Um, my comments are going to be mostly around the Māori electorates, um, and um, it's been quite a lot of action, I think, uh, going on in Māori communities and uh, the Māori electorates. I guess one of the first um, aspects to note was when we had the television um, leaders debate, the first of the, them so far, there were a number of commentators that pointed out that Māori issues um, didn't seem to have been raised or discussed by either leader. And I think, you know, in many ways, that's that's great that there's increasing awareness of Māori issues and when they aren't or are and aren't raised. And that's a really positive, I think, part of what we're seeing in terms of changes in our um, communities and our New Zealand political landscape. For Māori communities, of course, this wasn't really very new for many decades. We've noticed that Māori issues tend to be absent from some of those um, sorts of general debates. Um, but we're on a path, and I guess Māori communities are now expecting some more action um, from their candidates and politicians. Um, but this kind of noticing of Māori issues also reflects, I think, some of the differences we can see in our Māori electorates and our general electorates. Māori electorates and communities um, have several sort of base assumptions, I guess, and realities that they work from. And one is that Māori have tinoranga teratanga, have mana motu hake, and there's a kind of whole world that relates to iwi runanga, um, demonstrating the mana that they have um, in different places, including in COVID responses and things like that. Um, you know, also protecting, seeking to protect Māori rights. So we've got sort of slightly two political realities going on within the country. Um, and they're interconnected with some of the issues we see cropping up in the in the campaigns in the Māori seat. So one of the kind of main topical issues uh, that we can see at the moment is this decision by the Labour Māori MPs to stand again on the Labour Party list. In 2017, um, they requested an exemption to not be on the Labour Party list. And they said, you know, actually, we're not going to let people talk about a two-for-one deal in different Māori electorates. We're going to be off the Labour list altogether. So if you want us returned as your electorate MPs for Labour, um, then you must vote for us. And this was really a strategy designed to eliminate the Māori Party. Um, and they were successful in that. The Māori Party lost the last seat that they had in Wairiki. Um, this time around, they're saying, no, it's quite a different context. Um, you know, the different things happening. And we want to make, make it clear that the party really values um, the seven Māori seats 
and the, the wider Māori caucus. So a totally different strategy um, this time around. So they're, they're pointing out that standing in the Māori seats is an important reflection of political party values as well. And I'm going to come back to that point in a moment. Um, what this move from Labour has done is that now, of course, Māori Party and others, including the Greens, are saying, well, now we can have two-for-one deals or three-for-one deals in some electorates. So there's a lot of talk about strategic voting. Um, should voters be giving their electorate vote to the Māori Party candidate, candidate just for the electorate, their party vote to the Greens, who may be where we've got green, green candidates in the Māori seats, you know, another Māori person, and then, if we're assuming Labour's going to have a have a um, you know a majority or you know very be very successful from the general electorates, you're going to get another person in. So there's this kind of talk about strategic voting going on um, in the in the Māori electorates, and that's not possible in some of the other electorates. We see the Greens though this time around only standing in Taitonga, Ikaroa Rafati, uh, and Tamaki Makoto, and that's a shift for them. They've previously been building up to standing in all the Māori electorates, which again says something about the valuing of those seats and recognition of Māori representation. We don't have National or New Zealand First um, standing in the electorates. So there's a lot of kind of strategic talk going on about the votes. We also have the re-emergence of the Māori Party, and they're kind of coming out again a very strongly um, trying to have a candidate in one of the Māori electorates um, join them, join Parliament and therefore bring, bring the party back into the frame. And so they're standing in each of the electorates and have support from the likes of Hone Harawera, who of course broke away previously and formed the Mana movement. And they're really the only party that's putting forward um, constitutional change from a, from a Māori perspective into their kind of policy mix and manifesto. So they have a mana motuhake policy, which recommends, other, amongst other things, implementing the constitutional change um, that was recommended in the report from the Iwi Chairs um, Matike Mai group in 2016, the establishment of a, a Waitangi parliamentary commissioner, um, and they also want all Māori to start on the Māori electoral roll before they have an option of, of switching whenever they like. So there's a few things there. We do have Advance NZ. Um, uh, they want a Royal Commission to recommend an entrenched constitution. Um, so they've already got a, a clear idea of what the, the, the Commission should be recommending rather than investigating. Um, but it's not really an overtly Māori lens um, that they're coming from there. Um, we've seen some criticism of the Māori Party's policies, in particular the Fano build, which asks for a halt to immigration. Um, and that's raised some questions about whether they're discriminating against migrants and things like that. I think there's been some um, responses from the party which suggest that there could be some movement on that policy in, in light of the, um, the concerns. Each of the electorates, of course, though, has different dynamics going on in Tai Hawaru, which is um, where we have the closest margin between first winning and um, second candidate. We've had some polls suggesting that Labour's Adrian Rudafir is ahead of the Māori Party candidate, Debbie Ngarewa Packer, and that's a really important seat that the Māori Party was hoping to win, to return them to Parliament. Um, however, if we look back to 2017, at that time the polls had the Māori Party candidate at that time, Howie Tamati, um, well ahead of Adrian Rudafi and, and Rudafi won in the end. So I'm not sure how accurate um, that is there. Um, Te Tai Tonga, we've seen very open strategic um, 
candidates talking about, you know, don't give me your party vote, only give me your electorate vote or vice versa. So very sort of open um, talk about the strategic voting um, there. We do see more parties standing in the Māori electorates this time round, which is is excellent. Over the years, there have been quite significant fluctuations. Um, and we know that Māori who have shifted from the Māori electoral role to the general electoral role actually want to see more choice in the Māori electorate. So it's great that more parties are standing. And we know that those parties who are very openly rejecting standing candidates there are in some ways doing that to marginalise the Māori seats because they actually oppose them and want to abolish them. Um, so we have Advance NZ standing in all the, uh, in the Māori electorates except Tāmaki Makoto and of course Billy Tekahika is standing under the banner of New Zealand Public Party in Te Tai Tokiro. Um, and new Conservatives are standing in each Māori electorate and uh, they have some very sort of clear policies. Uh, Hannah Tamaki for Vision, NZ is only in Wairiki. Um, we know, of course, previous year elections, we've had Destiny, uh, who stood in all the Māori electorates, but they're um, so long gone from the scene. And then there are other parties that are sporadically standing, but not in all of them. Um, so I guess the question, we've got more candidates, more parties standing, but if Labour continues to dominate, I guess we return a little bit to the question about what factors make up the very embedded and deep loyalty to the Labour Party that we see in the Māori electorates. Um, you know, what, what is it that they could possibly do wrong um, to lose that vote? Um, we've had some inaction on water ownership questions, for example, um, and yet there still seems to be this strong um, loyalty there. And I guess that links to another kind of ongoing question which sits with the Māori electorates around what an independent Māori voice looks like. Um, the Māori Party campaign is very clearly about um, them only being accountable to Māori and not a, a wider political party caucus or anything like that. You know, the Māori seats are about representation of Māori constituents. Um, and that's always going to be the kind of complex dynamic and teaching in the Māori electorates when you have larger parties, predominantly non-Māori um, assumptions and values there with a, with a Māori caucus within it, or a kind of clearly Māori voice party, independent voice, you know, how does that dynamic um, play out? That's a kind of ongoing question, I guess, that we see um, in the seats. And I'll pass back to you and look forward to the questions and discussion. Perfect timing. Jack, all yours. Right. The Māori electorates are definitely going to be worth watching. Uh, and as Maria says, their loyalty to Labour, although it's wavered in the past, seems to be pretty strong at the moment. Let's turn to the overall picture of polling. In the early stages of uh, the coalition government, uh, Labour sometimes ahead, National sometimes ahead, but with COVID-19, the picture has shifted very dramatically. As we all know, Labour's now uh, more than 10 points ahead of National. We have the recovery of ACT as a viable force in its own right, as opposed to simply being given uh, an electorate by National. We have the Greens uh, going through a bit of a hiatus, but now seemingly coming back up. Uh, although closeness to the threshold remains an issue for them because unlike ACT, they don't have an electorate seat. So what, what can we expect further? 
Well, maybe a possible further narrowing as the campaign goes on. Campaigns do give a little bit more space for opposition parties to get their uh, opinions across. But the problem is that National needs a shift from Labour to their own camp. And to start off with, Judith Collins' strategy seems mostly to have been to consolidate the base, which could have the effect of clawing back some of the votes from ACT which is actually something that they might want to do because otherwise they're going to lose quite a lot of experienced MPs to what are going to be a series of unknown quantities uh, from the ACT Party. So consolidating the base is probably a good strategy on her part to begin with. But the problem is, of course, in the long run, they've got to take votes from National. They had a hope that ACT would actually be taking away the New Zealand First constituency. But that hasn't happened. Uh, instead, uh, polling uh, analysis shows that the majority of New Zealand First votes from 2017 have actually gone to Labour, which isn't entirely a surprise because while ACT is uh, very much to the right on economic policy, New Zealand First has always been much more centrist. So the debates, what about them? Well, again, the first debate did seem to be about Judith Collins trying to uh, solidify the base. But of course, debates don't really make a lot of difference unless something major happens. So in, in 2011, for example, Phil Goff made a bit of an error uh, or couldn't explain his party's tax policy effectively. We haven't really seen anything like that in the current debates, although uh, Judith Collins uh, doesn't apparently know who actually won the land at Ihumato before uh, Fletcher's got hold of it. And she has also said something about uh, water quality regulations being rushed through Parliament when actually they weren't. Whether this is an attempt to misinform or whether she herself is misinformed, uh, we don't really know. In terms of the first debate, uh, commentators seemed to think that Collins had won. And there were also issues about the camera angles and lighting in the debate, which were rather disadvantageous to Ardern, which uh, are interesting. But uh, Vote Compass, which uh, appears on TVNZ pretty regularly now, did a poll after the debate and actually found that among their respondents, the impression was that Ardern had won. And, and moreover, Ardern did much better among Labour supporters or Labour intending voters than Collins did among intending national voters. So obviously these perceptions are shaped by partisanship, but even uh, partisanship indicated that uh, Ardern had done better than Collins. So second debate, uh, much better run, more of an obvious draw. Uh, more generally, of course, tax plays a, a pretty important uh, uh, part in any election campaign, we usually have tax promises from the National Party to reduce taxation, to uh, change the marginal rates of taxation, uh, to adjust to inflation, so on and so forth. And they've made a promise that if they get into office, then there'll be a temporary tax break, which will mostly benefit people who are above the average income. So there's very little in it for people on lower incomes, which makes their rationale for the tax cut as a stimulus uh, somewhat uh, 
doubtful because economists tell us that actually if you want to stimulate the economy by tax cuts, you should give it to the people who actually uh, need to spend money on basic stuff rather than people who are better off who will use it mostly to pay down their mortgages or pay down their debts or, or put the deposit towards uh, something that they want. So on the other hand, you've got Labor saying that they want to increase the top marginal tax rate for the top 2% of income earners. It's not going to deliver very much, uh, either in terms of uh, government revenue or in terms of addressing inequality. So it's a gesture. I suppose it's better than nothing, but this takes us into a more general criticism of Labour's campaign, which is, of course, very cautious, very conservative. But after all, there is a reason for this, because Ardern's popularity is so great that she is the biggest draw for the Labour Party. And while they have policies, and uh, some of them are relatively progressive, the major pitch is Ardern herself and the competence of the government on COVID-19. So Labour doesn't really have to campaign in that sense, in the way that an opposition party, uh, uh, that a, a government party uh, might campaign to defend their record. And indeed, parts of their record are not as successful as they might have liked, largely because they were stopped from doing a lot of stuff by New Zealand first, but not entirely so. So one can understand their campaign, one can understand uh, Judith Collins' approach as well. Uh, my guess is that if they haven't already clawed back support from ACT by now, uh, they're probably not going to, and they will turn their attention much more towards trying to attract the voters in the middle ground. But of course, we still have a long way to go in the campaign, and indeed, because of the postponement of the election, it seems as though the campaign's been going on forever. And uh, we've still got a way to go. And there may still be events which will change things, or maybe not. We just have to wait and see. Over to you, Bryce. Thanks, Jack. Okay. Um, so just starting off with my overall summary, which is that I think this is shaping up to be a landmark election in which we're likely to see a Labour Greens uh, government elected. But there's still a small chance, I think, of a National Act comeback in the next two weeks. And so despite it being a, a landmark election, I think it's also been a very bland and discombobulated election, as Jack has been saying. And I think we could be looking at a very low voter turnout, which I'll come back to later. Um, I think there's huge issues that are on the table at the moment, and they're mostly traditional economic ones. But the political parties themselves, I think, are um, keeping those off the table. They're not directly addressing them. So in my view, this is very much a status quo election during a crisis. And so I think that's a problem. It's a centrist election in which I think there's a public awareness of the need for great change. There's a public appetite for some boldness and some big policies. And we've got some opinion surveys showing us that. Um, but the parties themselves are mostly only offering variations on the status quo at the moment. They've mostly shifted towards the center of the political spectrum at a time of huge disruption. So they're offering cautious and rather conservative uh, policies on everything from climate change to the housing affordability crisis to poverty and inequality through to the need for tax reform. It's not really big, even though I think um, we're seeing the need for it. 
So in my view, there's a lack of leadership in this campaign. Um, some people are calling this a policy light election, and I think that's true. So the incumbents, Labour, are really epitomising this. They're positioning themselves as the conservative centrist party at this election. Their whole pitch is really about stability and the status quo. And clearly that strategy is to win over and keep lots of national voters and swing voters in the middle of the spectrum. So they're playing the ultimate um, sort of medium voter strategy. And largely, I think they've given up on a lot of the working class vote and a lot of uh, the left vote and a lot of those at the bottom of the heap. Um, so there's no great attempt from Labour at this election to try and convince or mobilise that million that aren't currently voting in elections who have turned away. So in lots of sense, this is a, a sensible strategy for Labour, I think. Um, it's really leaving national outmanoeuvred. By taking a lot of the, the centrist policies, the centrist uh, positioning, it's really leaving national with nowhere to go um, because Labour's the status quo party and they're the new Conservative Party as far as I'm concerned. And it can be very successful. And we're seeing that with really large poll numbers. But I think there's also an electoral danger to this approach. Um, because if you take your base for granted, if you're not representing working class voters or even left voters, um, and you're relying instead on just trying to win and hold on to those national or traditional national party voters, that's a really so soft support base. And it is fickle and they can easily lose those voters either in the next two weeks or in a subsequent um, election campaign. So National itself I don't think is really offering much alternative to that Labour approach. They're certainly to the political right of Labour, there's no doubt about that, but from my, in my point of view they're not offering anything very distinctly different. They've made lots of critiques, you know, quite good critiques of the failures of this government and housing, child poverty, climate change, but it's not very clear that they've got any program that is much more reliable, um, that's gonna produce any better outcomes on those things. So turning on to the minor parties, I think that they've got a gift um, because these two major parties aren't putting forward a plan much for this crisis we're in. Um, and so they've been given an opportunity to fill that gaping hole but they too seem unwilling to fill the void. Um, I think perhaps Axe doing the best um, job of this on the right, um, and they're being rewarded for that. Uh, they've got their best poll results uh, for almost two decades. And so the surge of the Act Party is the real success story of the election campaign so far. The Greens are doing surprisingly poorly, and they haven't been able to take advantage of uh, Labour's centrism and their blandness. And partly this could be because the Greens too are somewhat centrist and bland and have been for the last few years. Um, but of course, it's always difficult for any minor party that's in a coalition arrangement to differentiate themselves and to be able to um, hold on to their voters. And in many cases, there's lots of left-wing voters, lots of environmental voters that feel the Greens haven't been effective in government, that um, they've been unimpressive in power. So I think the state of the minor parties is the real disappointment of this um, election campaign at the moment. Um, I think the decline of the minor parties is really bad for, uh, for voter choice, for democracy. You know, MMP really benefits when you've got an array of different options. And the minor parties are the ones that are normally more dynamic, they're normally more policy focused, and they give a bit more oomph to an election campaign. But we're not seeing that so much at the moment. They seem a bit out of steam, a bit exhausted. And of course, the, one, the party that epitomizes that the most at the moment is New Zealand First, which is clearly on its way out. Um, 
and it shows the dangers of any minor party being focused, built around just one person. Um, I don't think New Zealand First has that organic connection with any voter base in society anymore, and so it's very easy for them to die, which is what's happening at the moment. We might have expected that the Murray Party would have a very good chance at resurgence in this election. After all, the Labour-led government has been universally panned for not delivering for Murray over the last three years, and so this has provided fertile conditions for the return, for the, the reconfiguration of the Murray Party, but I think they've failed to reinvent themselves in the right way. I don't think they're in touch with the zeitgeist, um, which we'll come back to soon. So given the failures of the minor parties that are actually in power at the moment, uh, we also might have expected a rebirth, some sort of uh, the fledgling new micro parties, if you like, to uh, find a way forward, but we haven't really seen that either. So in recent polls, the last one, yes, we've had New Zealand First and the Murray Party on 1%, but we've also see, had TOP, the New Conservatives and the Advance Party on 1%. It's very hard for minor parties to actually get started. They're at a huge disadvantage against those that are already in power. Those ones in parliament have millions of dollars of parliamentary resources to use. They have a media profile. And of course, the 5% MMP threshold really has a huge disadvantage effect on um, those fledgling new startup parties. It means that voters just don't even consider them in most cases. So I think after this election, um, we really are going to have to have a think about the party system and the barriers to new minor parties. New Zealand First is going to be gone. I think the Greens are still possible to go, um, especially if National starts um, going up in the polls in the next week or so. We're likely to see a lot on the left um, panic a bit, perhaps, and some that might have considered voting Green will go to Jacinda. They will go to Labour, scared with the rise of National, and that could drive uh, the Greens further down below six or seven percent. Um, so that would be a huge democratic deficit, in my view, if we ended up with just those three parties in Parliament, Labour, National and ACT. But we are likely to see, I think, in the next two weeks, much more focus on the minor parties, um, and probably more the minor parties than the micro parties. I think as it's clear that those various um, top um, new Conservatives, etc., aren't going to be players, we're going to be focused a bit more on the Greens and ACT. But it's possibly what's likely to be a lot of negative um, coverage for them because Labour and National are both going to start trying to use the fear campaign about those respective minor parties that are on the flanks of their opponents. And so, yes, Labour's going to um, talk a lot about the possibility of uh, Deputy Prime Minister David Seymour and some of ACT's policies. National's going to focus a lot on you know, the possibility of uh, Deputy Prime Minister Marama Davidson, etc. And there's a lot of, going to be a lot of fear-mongering about that. So moving on to some of the big issues, like I said, I think there's been this huge disjuncture in this campaign about the appetite for change on the one hand, but the response from the parties, which is, um, is, is quite limited. Mostly the big issues have really been those traditional, what we might call in political science, materialist issues, really based around the economy, poverty, inequality, housing, um, unemployment, and so forth, that are part of any sort, any sort of economic crisis, um, but there have been a lot of post-materialist ones, so ones that are 
I guess, non-economic, if you like. Um, and we saw this in the debate on uh, two nights ago, um, discussions on other important things for people about whether um, the country should change its name. Uh, we we talk, saw discussion about gender-neutral toilets, about Tereo, uh, cannabis and euthanasia, of course, are the other big ones, the other big post-materialist ones, um, because they're referendum questions. But then there's the COVID management, as Jack talked about, and issues around leadership and personality and competency, I think, are also very big at the moment. So in terms of uh, what Maria was talking about before, in terms of those, those Murray electorates, um, and from what I've seen, those debates in those areas have also been very materialist. Labour won all seven seats at the last election because they took a really materialist approach. They focused more than ever more from than from a long time on um, economic issues, on cost of living, on what was happening to those at the bottom of society, and probably less on uh, cultural issues. And likewise, I'm not noticing that that's really shifted. We're still talking a lot about homelessness. We're talking about poverty and inequality in those uh, those areas. Um, not so much on Ihimotao, not so much about cultural issues, uh, which is really where the Māori Party are focused. You know, they're raising issues about um, having a Māori par parliament, etc. I don't think that is resonating at this time. It might resonate in different elections, but not so much. So I think Labour is still really destined to have a clean sweep of those electorates. None of those other parties are really putting forward uh, an alternative to Labour, um, even though Labour haven't seemed to um, have delivered. So in terms of my predictions, you know, is this a foregone conclusion at this election? Um, I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that. I think we can probably anticipate a Labour landslide victory. Labour's certainly going to get you know, a significant higher vote than they did last time. 37% last time is likely to be at least 10 percentage points above that. Um, and that won't be enough necessarily to govern on their own. So we'll have the Greens in there as well. Um, and we'll have a uh, a Labour Greens government. But I think there is still a small chance of things tightening up. Jack talked about how that does happen in election campaigns. And if National can get up to the high 30s, um, if they can do that without cannibalising the act vote and by at least um, not going after the, that sort of base, but starting to go after um, some of the votes they've lost to Labour, some of that centrist vote, um, they could get up into the high 30s in fact, you know, still on eight, nine, ten percent, then it does put them within striking range. And if the Greens, like I said before, do end up dropping below the five percent threshold, there is still that scenario where um, National could be in with a shot. I still think it's unlikely, but we have to be ready for that, like that possibility. Um, I don't think any of the electorate seats are going to end up being crucial in this election campaign. There will be, I think, a number that change from National to Labour, you know, whether it's Nelson, Hutt, South. Um, there's a lot of those marginal electorates that will fall, I think, Autumn Central, obviously. The Murray electorates, I think, are going to stay solid with Labour. But my final point is really just about the engagement aspect. To what extent we're going to see um, a big turnout at this election? It's very hard to predict. I think it's going to be one of the more interesting outcomes that I'll be watching out for. Um, I think Jack might talk about this soon. He's the expert on turnout. Um, but as we've seen in recent elections, turnout generally has been um, trending downwards over the last few decades. We hit a, a low point at 2011 of what, 69.6% of eligible voters. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it went below that this election. Um, I think there's two factors that are likely to drive it down. Um, one, 
that it's not seen as a competitive election. For those on left and right, it's seen as a foregone conclusion that their side has won or lost, and that won't mobilise people. Um, I think that it's been such a bland and unengaging uh, campaign will also drive down turnout. On the other hand, we've got those referendum questions. They might bring out a lot of voters that might not really vote um, for, um, in terms of marijuana um, legalization, in terms of euthanasia. Um, and then of course, we've just got the whole COVID um, situation, which I think is quite unpredictable. It's brought back politics. It's made politics more fascinating in many ways. It's brought big issues to the table and it might get people out on um, election day, or in fact, uh, from tomorrow when advance voting starts. But I think it's engagement that we should be looking at as one of the, the big metrics for whether this has been a successful election in the end. Okay, so that's me. And um, Maria, I saw you taking some notes. Uh, you want to jump in with? Well, a couple of things I do agree with you on, um, Brian. Quite a few things I thought, well, in the Māori electorates, it's been very competitive and quite exciting and somewhat and heated in some, um, because there's this kind of proper contest this time around, you know, in the last election, in some of the electorates, there were only two candidates, and we do have that a, a pretty much again in Hodaki Waikato, um, but, you know, there's much more competition, and then I see more energy, in fact, you said um, that the parties are kind of all exhausted, well, I think um, when it comes to the Māori Party in particular, they've seen very energetic. Um, I think it's right. Yeah. And while, and, and, while um, and you're talk, sort of talking about this division in types of policies, materialist or, or not, um, really what the Māori Party is doing in their articulation of some of those, and so are some of the other parties, is linking it back to legacies of colonisation. So homelessness, for example, or, um, you know, disconnection, health impacts of disconnection from culture. So you might be just talking about health, but actually they add in that other element around disconnection of, of from culture, what does that lead to, um, you know, in terms of health, determinants of health, um, rates of imprisonment, that all comes from legacies of colonisation and some racial discrimination in our, our justice system and so on. So I think there's more going on, um, in particular in the Māori seats. In terms of the appetite for change, I think there is that huge appetite, and you're right, that's where some of the policies, um, you know, the party manifestos and so on, really lack the enthusiasm and keenness that we've seen from the private sector, from different businesses who are keen to embrace more treaty-based ways of doing things. And we've got Vodafone and other big corporates sending that message, as well as more um, environmentally sensitive um, sort of policies and, and stances. So yeah, it's a shame that some of that hasn't been, I mean, of course, the Greens will say they've embraced that part, but um, but with some more enthusiasm, I think that appetite for change hasn't really, you know, in those bold steps, particularly on climate change, you know, we're facing some pretty drastic <laughs> annihilation <laughs> in that sense. And that, that could have been a chance for a much bolder um, step on climate, climate adaptation. Jack, your turn. Well, yeah, there are a few things to respond to, Bryce. I, I think there's more difference between the... Labour Green versus National Act on economic and social policy than uh, Bryce acknowledges. Uh, clearly, if we were to get a National Act government, uh, given the uh, tax cuts that they have promised and the consequences further down the track in, in, in terms of uh, managing the debt, there's far less expenditure going to be available for social policy. And 
very, very little uh, to do anything to address the very significant social problems that uh, we were facing before COVID-19 and we will face even more seriously uh, in, in the aftermath. So I think there is, there is a difference. And there's also a difference on environmental policy. Clearly, we can see Collins playing into the conservative rural vote here. And it's clear that uh, there'll be a backtrack on water quality. There'll be a backtrack on addressing climate change. So these are big issues. I don't think we, sh we should minimise them. And I think one also needs to be cautious about uh, looking at numbers in opinion polls, which seem to indicate that there is a very high aptitude type for change. In a way, there is. But the problem is that public attitudes can change when uh, opponents who stand to lose from those kinds of changes begin to make arguments against to the effect that, oh, this is going to damage the economy. They're going to bring out all kinds of counter arguments that will sap people's confidence in continuing to support radical policies. So th there's a reason for Labour's <laughs> conservatism yeah. on a lot of these issues. In terms of turnout, I guess it's going to be interesting to see if the marijuana referendum brings out the young vote at all. And that could have some significance. What's interesting is, of course, while 2011 was the lowest turnout we've arguably ever had since uh, female suffrage, uh, the turnout behaviour did uptick in both 2014 and 2017, although not by much. Uh, and I think it's likely we will see a drop in turnout. On the other hand, this is such an unusual election. Uh, COVID-19 has just made this uh, very hard to pick in terms of how people are are responding. In a way, it's something that, at least during the lockdown, the immediate aftermath, brought people together in mm. a way that we haven't seen. As, as Bryce was saying, it's made politics more relevant, uh, what governments do more relevant. So we just have to wait and see. Agreed. So Barb's asking, so is it fair for a government handling a pandemic to be having to campaign. So of course, you know, we've got this crisis, maybe we shouldn't be having an election, maybe um, it should have been put off for longer perhaps? Is that maybe where this question's coming from? Presumably. Yeah, and oh, um, it's certainly difficult for Jacinda Ardern to be dealing with uh, some of these big health, you know, uh, issues and having to come up with a manifesto. And I do wonder whether um, Labour's lack of a manifesto or strong policies has been due to COVID, no. And if that hadn't happened, we would have seen some more bold policies, which I think is counterintuitive in a sense, because I think we need bolder policies yeah. due to yeah. COVID, but that could be part of the explanation. So, There's yeah. certainly a lot of ongoing policy development that was that was going on yeah. that I think got, got stalled as the result of COVID for, for quite understandable reasons. Uh, I, think, I think it would have been an excessive reaction to have postponed the election or perhaps formed a grand coalition or anything like that. I think the experience in other countries who are facing far worse COVID experiences than we are is to have the damned election uh, and put the, the government's handling of the crisis to the test. Maria, do you want to... Oh, pandemic's going on for quite some time, so does the election have other way, I think. <laughs> okay, so Heather's asking, if there is a low turnout, is this more likely to hurt Labour than National? I think Jack will be the, uh, the best person to answer this one. Surprisingly, uh, while many people think that 
lower turnout tends to adversely affect parties of the left. There's no real consistent evidence about this. It does tend to uh, change from election to election. So uh, a lot of turnout is related to how hard the parties work at the grassroots to try to drag people out. And so really what we need to know is how active uh, Labor is in encouraging its supporters to vote and conversely how active National is being and, and the extent to which uh, they're able to mobilise on the ground. They're using social media a lot more now, of course, whether that has mobilising effects uh, as well as the traditional uh, strategies. So, uh, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. Okay, what about you, Maria? Do you want to discuss anything with that, even to do with the Murray electorates? Um, well, of course, the turnout's lower there, so, um you know, we're going to, who knows what we're going to see. If, if I'm right about the kind of increased competition and therefore um, interest in what's going on, then maybe they'll, we'll keep up this little bump that we have um, and not have it continue to drop down. John Wilson says, I'd be careful of ruling NZ first out. They were polling at similar levels to today, about 2%, two weeks before the 2011 election and then got 6.6% on election day. So that's a really good point, and that's the point that I think Peters keeps making, that perhaps the polling isn't reliable. Um, You've followed this a lot, Jack. Well, experience is, of course, that one should never rule Winston Peters out of I am. contention. Uh, on the other hand, 2011 was a different election. Uh, New Zealand First was campaigning from opposition, indeed from not, not even having been in Parliament mm. uh, during the previous uh, term. Uh, whereas now New Zealand First is campaigning as a government party uh, and on its record. And that appears to have provoked quite a lot of disappointment among both New Zealand vote, First voters and more broadly in the general electorate. So I think it's, it's far more difficult for New Zealand First to make a comeback. I would never rule it out, but I think it's, it's looking increasingly unlikely. I think also sometimes you have that reverse bandwagon effect, don't you, as well, that, which is, you know, perhaps where we should be sympathetic to New Zealand First, that the media, the commentators keep on saying how badly New Zealand First are doing, and therefore people aren't likely to vote for them, especially with that psychological effect of that 5% threshold, which is very difficult, I think. Um, and so, sadly for them, that might also increase that spiral of decline. Okay, another one probably mainly for Jack. Steve saying, you mentioned that a youth vote surge might appear to be based on the cannabis referendum. Is there any real empirical evidence on this, Jack? Well, as this is something that is likely to happen in the future rather than in the past, uh, we can't really point to any empirical evidence. Certainly, there is evidence that people tend to turn out to, uh, to vote more if they have an issue that is highly salient to them. And the kind of young people who... Uh, are more likely to be smoking cannabis are probably those kind of young people who would normally be less likely to vote. And so perhaps some will be more vote motivated to vote now. But we'll have to wait and see. OK, and uh, additional question for you then. So if there is a surge of young voter turnout for the referendum, what's the flow and effect for the party vote likely to be? Well, you'd expect it to benefit the Greens, I guess. I think if there is anything like that, it will be very marginal. OK. 
I guess the only other element to that is whether they'll come in, answer that particular question and leave the voting on the other aspects of the bit of paper. Um, you know, we saw in the referendum around MMP back in 2011, there was that discrepancy in whether people were voting in part A or part B. So whether they want to make their little point um, for one part of it and leave the other parts to the side, that's another. But you're right, we just we don't know that at the moment. So Jack, you and one of your colleagues are doing some work on social media at the moment. And so there's a question here from Barb. What effect will social media have on this campaign and turnout? What do you think? It's a good question. Uh, and I'm not sure we have the evidence to be entirely sure. What we have seen is that social media has been increasingly used uh, since uh, uh, it first became available for political parties to use. And in fact, use of social media by political parties, at least as measured by uh, the people who tell us that parties tried to communicate to them by that means, has doubled at every election uh, since uh, 2014. So doubled from a very small base in 2011, doubled again in 2014, doubled again in 2017. Uh, and so we expect uptake to increase uh, this year. But of course, there's also been a lot of other uh, means used to, to, to contact people. Uh, I mean, the international evidence on social media is that it might have some marginal effects on perhaps encouraging people to vote who are more heavy social media users than others, which might conceivably have some kind of effect on youth. But I don't think there's been enough empirical analysis of this around the world to uh, get some definitive answers on this. And it also depends, I think, on other things like whether youth are engaged for other reasons during the campaign. So the cannabis referendum might conceivably be associated with an increase in turnout, particularly if social media becomes a focus for that kind of uh, uh, discussion. Uh, we've got to wait and see again. Maria? I keep saying that, I know. But. So Eric's asking, if, as it seems likely, we end up with a Labour-Green coalition, will we see a more radical programme now without the handbrake of NZ First? What do you think? Well, I mean, that's, I was going to raise that in my comments, but we were running out of time. Uh, you know, that New Zealand First has been blamed. Uh, well, they've claimed credit, what they think of as credit, being the handbrake, but they've also been blamed by Labour and the Greens for various um, inaction on policy. And I guess if they're no longer there, um, then that ex excuse doesn't remain. So whether it's ihu matau, water ownership, um, you know, there's uh, no new mines on conservation land. There are quite a number of areas um, where apparently New Zealand first was the holdup. Um, but, you know, that'll be back on to Labour and the Greens to, you know, provide the actual reasons why some of those things may, may or may not be progressing. I don't think we're actually going to see more, a more radical agenda. Um, you know, I think for some of us, we could hope for it, um, particularly in the climate change space, but um, I don't think so. I think where the sources of, of blockage are will actually be revealed. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that, Maria. And I, I think it's been oversold, this idea of a handbrake from New Zealand First. There are definitely some areas where they have vetoed things or tried to veto things. And we might see progress on that from a Labour Green government, such as in fisheries with cameras on boats, uh, in terms of, yes, mining on conservation land, um, three strikes, uh, the repeal of the three strikes bill. Um, there's probably a few others there, yeah, but they're yeah. mostly... Uh, labour relations, probably. Yeah, labour yeah. relations is probably quite an important one with the fair pay agreements yeah, yeah. and things like that. But 
I suspect it's not going to change any of those, um, you know, fiscal policy things. I don't think it's going to change um, much in terms of welfare, housing. I don't think New Zealand First would claim to have been a handbrake on Kiwi Build or anything like that. No. Okay, so we've got Tony and he's saying, why has there been so little reaction to the centralising tendencies of this government? This would seem a natural platform for a minor party. So yeah, good question. Why has there not been any of the minor parties that are grabbing on to um, yeah, this idea that this government's been too much of a centre one? And yeah, why aren't there any minor parties that are benefiting? I'm not entirely sure what Tony means by centralising tendencies, uh, whether it's you know, sticking to the centre or whether it's civil liberties being uh, undercut by the COVID-19 response. I mean, certainly advanced, oh, yeah. advanced New Zealand is in that, in that space. I'm not entirely sure what, what, what it means. Yeah, I think he means um, about this government not being particularly you know, radical of left or right. They're being very middle of the road. And yeah, I'm not sure it's a question I can answer very well. Um, but it's one that I'm concerned about too. I'm thinking, why aren't we seeing some other minor party coming up and taking advantage of the situation? And in my view, the Greens should be. But they're not obviously uh, performing as well as they, they should be, I think. Any ideas why you think the Greens aren't doing better? Well, I think the, the wealth tax policy is, is actually pretty radical. Uh, and uh, if anybody was serious about wanting to try to address wealth and income inequality in New Zealand, they should be voting for the Green Party. Okay. Uh, John's back with another question um, on turnout. So this is probably more for Jack again. My estimate is that it will be close to the 2017 result of about 80%. Now, I think that 80% is probably of a, as a proportion of those enrolled as opposed to the as a proportion of the adult population. Yeah. Um, and he sees referenda is already having an effect on youth enrolment compared to last term. There is some evidence that youth enrolment is, is running ahead of last election, I believe. I haven't seen the more recent figures, but uh, I think I recall a press report to that effect a week or two ago. So... John, I don't know if these are questions, but I'll quickly read out what he's saying. He says, low turnout definitely affects the Green Party. They average much higher support among younger cohorts than older age groups. Yep. Um, so you have to discount the Green vote by 20% to see what they'll actually pop. So he thinks that um, you can take off um, a fifth of what we're seeing in the polls to see what the Greens are going to get. Do you think that's, that's right? Well, the polling companies do try to get their samples as close to representative sample of the population by age and gender and several other things as, That's true. as they can. But uh, his point is more about mobilisation. So the polls might be correct, but if the Greens can't mobilise their young voters on the day or in advance voting... There is some evidence that... Uh, the green vote is slightly lower than green polls, even uh, for those pollsters that uh, uh, tend to record the, the, the green intended vote as lower. But it, it's, I don't think it's as much as 20%. Uh, and the, the, the other question that John's put up is about New Zealand first. Again, th those samples will be representative of older people, and they are also using landlines. And so presumably their ratio between who gets called on the landlines probably is directed towards older people. 
and those on uh, mobile phones to younger people. Mm. So the polling companies do do what they can to try to, I mean, they know about these issues and they do try to wait for them and to make sure that their samples are as good as they can be. Polling is a lot more difficult now than it used to be uh, because of much lower response rates, because landlines are now uh, uh, far less uh, uh, used in, by households. Uh, and this is one reason why we do uh, see discrepancies between the pollsters, because they do tend to use slightly different sampling frames. There's also uh, use of online panels, uh, which, again, uh, are intended to be representative, but probably raise even more problems. Okay, so we're just about out of time. So I just wondered if the three of us can think about our, our final predictions. Um, you know, is this going to tighten up in the end? Or, I know nothing's... Uh, nothing's certain, but are we willing to go out there on a limb and make a prediction on whether things will tighten up? Is there any chance of National Enact actually getting in striking range, or is this just going to be a landslide to Labour? You go first, Jack. I think it will tighten because I think uh, an election campaign gives more space to the opposition, so they, they have a chance to try to drag back some of the people who voted for them in the past, uh, and whether that comes from ACT back into National or whether National manages to pull maybe a few people who formerly voted New Zealand first or maybe are considering voting now, now in, with Labour but uh, might be dragged back to National. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. I think COVID-19 really has made a difference. Uh, you know, I, I've been publishing a few commentary pieces uh, and get some comments back. And I recall one in particular from someone who said that uh, they, they were now going to vote Labour. Uh, the last time they voted Labour was in 1987, but they were going to vote Labour in 2020 because of the COVID-19 response. I think there are quite a few people in that cat category. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether they still feel the same way on election day. Okay. Or indeed when they get round to voting, given that we can now vote earlier. Okay, so can you summarise what you've just said? To... It'll narrow. A little narrow. Bit. And so yeah. you think we could quite conceivably be looking at Prime Minister Judith Collins soon? Well, the, I think the, 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 the pathway for a National Act government is if the Greens start to slip and they fall below the threshold. So they're out. And then it's a matter of a straight race between Labour and National Act. So just say the Greens did fall to, say, 4.5%. Uh, how low can Labour go and still govern, do you think? You know, in the 40s, what sort of... Um, and they still get a majority of seats? I mean, I know it depends... Well, on I mean, they have, they, they, they have to get more votes than National Act together, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so we're looking at 46 47%. And well, it depends, it depends It depends how many on... votes continue to go to other yeah. parties as well. So... Yeah. It's just a matter of whether uh, naming a figure is yes. not very helpful. It's more just about whether they can still get more votes than the National League. Maria, what do you think? Well, I'm just thinking if it's if it's correct that things are going to tighten up, then in the Māori electorates, you know, that might be good for the Māori Party if they start to be needed in either by either side in terms of coalition arrangements. You know, who knows? Ironically, Labour might start to um, need to woo them <laughs> as part of some kind of arrangement. On that question, is the Māori Party still in play for going with both either bloc, or have they been clear? They've made clear statements that actually most of they know that most of their supporters party vote Labour anyway. Um, and so that's, you know, a natural affiliation. Uh, and I think that's partly to restore confidence for those supporters who did vote for the Māori Party in previous elections 
uh, when they joined um, with the National Party. So, uh, uh, you know, they've certainly been pointing towards the Labour Party. Um, but as you know, Winston always leaves things open. <laughs> I think, you know, <laughs> you never know after the election if somebody calls uh, to form a government which way you're going to go. Um, but I guess the other factor, of course, has to be COVID. You know, we only need a flight uh, <laughs> or a community outbreak um, to occur um, for us to head back into lockdown and things will. You know, we've seen over the past few months, things can drastically shift um, with these sorts of outbreaks. So fingers crossed that we all stay safe and uh, continue on and um, poll safely and things like that at the booths. Um, but yeah, you never know. So just briefly on those Murray electorates, which ones could change and go which way if something like this happened? Oh, uh, something like a lockdown or something like tightening up? Yeah, tightening up. Well, Taiha Hauaru and Wairiki, um, probably some that people would look at. Wow. Actually, I've got a, a quick question from Maria. As I understand it, the Māori Party has not been actively campaigning for the party vote. They've been... Yeah. Uh, and yet, surely, as, as we saw previously, uh, getting winning one Māori electorate and having a party vote of a little bit over 1.2% or whatever, can actually drag in a, a list MP or possibly more if the Māori Party were to get a higher party vote. Why are they not doing that? Well, here strategically, you'd think actually Labour should be um, excited about this development because it is a kind of two, the two-for-one type strategy. Mm. And the argument is that just we don't want the party vote. You could still give that to Labour. You know, we know that those may be where your loyalties lie, but give us the electorate vote. Now, so I think it's mainly a focus on winning one of the electorate seats and then probably thinking at the next election about also then going back for the party vote again. OK, well, I think we've run out of time. So um, thanks, Maria, and thanks, Jack, for joining yeah, thank us. Thank you, Bryce. And thanks, everyone, for watching. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, Subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stephen Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere Rā.